For those of you here this morning who are Christians, I want you to think for a moment about your conversion. How did God save you? When did God save you? What are the details surrounding how you became a Christian? Were you young? Were you old? Did you grow up in a Christian household? Was it a a pastor who shared the gospel with you? Was it a brother or sister, a father or mother? Or maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. Maybe God saved you later in your life. Maybe you went off to college. Maybe you wandered down a rebellious path. And one day a friend asked you to read the Bible with him. No matter how God saved you, whether you grew up in a Christian home or whether you didn't, if God has saved you, there is at least one common thread throughout the countless testimonies of conversions. And that is they all involve an intricate web of details. Suppose for a moment that you were saved at a Christian camp. Well, think, well, how did you get to the camp? Was it by bus or was it by plane or maybe by train? Think of the details that it takes to get you from your home to the camp. And then think at the camp, well, who was your counselor? What were the conversations like that week at camp? Who was the speaker? Where did he come from? How did he travel to get to the camp? Maybe you had a family member who just got sick before the camp. Maybe you remember at the, towards the end of the school year, you had this friend who you saw this change take place in your friend. And all of a sudden your friend just kept talking to you about this guy named Jesus. And he just seemed to have a joy. And now you're at camp and you're hearing the speaker talk about Jesus. We can zoom out even further. Think about the details involved in simply you being born. What if your parents had not met? What if they went to different schools or had different majors or lived in different towns? What if they didn't share a mutual friend? What if they had different interests and their paths never crossed? One slight alteration in these details could have dramatic effects and consequences on who we are and how God has worked in our lives. The details involving your first birth and your second birth, your spiritual birth alone are astounding. And that's to say nothing about all of the other millions of details that make up who you are as a person. And as we consider just the details of our conversion or of our natural birth, we can begin to see that the the way things happened and the the particular manner in which they came about had significant consequences. The details are important. And the details matter. All of them. Even the seemingly insignificant details. They all work together to form who you are and what God has done in your life. My friends, in our passage today, there are a lot of details And every one of them is important. Together they work together. 
each detail working together to, to give us a grand picture. And this working together of the details is part of what we call God's providence. God's providence is God making sure that his plan actually comes to pass. And the good news for us is that God's providence governs everything. God's providence makes sure that God's plans actually happen. God's providence ensured that if you're in Christ, you're actually in Christ. That, that God worked in your life in such a way to make sure that you came to trust in, in Christ and turn from your sins. And this is part of Luke's point in our passage today. Now, to give you guys a heads up, we're, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to look at Paul's time in Jerusalem under trial. So that will be largely chapter 22 and chapter 23. And the reason for that is because Luke wants us to see that every detail that happens to Paul while he's in prison actually happened because God intended it to happen. That God cares about the details of Paul's life. So the events that happen to Paul, they're, they're not random, they're not haphazard, they're not an afterthought, but they are the means that God had ordained for Paul, for Paul's good, and for God's glory. And so as we cover a lot of scripture, that, that may seem daunting, but I have one simple goal, and that's to help us see, I think, what Luke wants us to see. God's providence is what unites all of these stories together. Jesus promised in the very beginning of Acts that his apostles would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's God's plan. That's God's mission. That's God's purpose, is that God would have a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation and up to this point, we have seen the progress, the explosive progress of the gospel as it's started in Jerusalem and has gone now to much of the Roman Empire. And the temptation that we may face as we read about Paul's imprisonment here is to think that the word has stopped progressing. And Luke wants us to see, no, 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 no. The word has not stopped progressing. God is continuing to fulfill his plan. He is working all things according to his will, ensuring that the gospel is going forward. And the way that he's done that in our passage is through Paul being arrested. And so first we will see that God was working providentially in the past. And we see that in what I just read for us, that God was working providentially in the past. Look at verse 39. Paul's arrested and he's about to be taken into the barracks. And Paul asks, hey, can I, can I speak to these people who are calling for my arrest? Can I make a defense? And the tribune says, well, who are you? And Paul says, I'm a Jew born in Tarshish. That was an important ancient city. It had a city of reputation. It was a self-governing city like the ancient city of Philippi. So when Paul says, hey, this is where I was born, the tribune says, 
oh, one, you're not the Egyptian, but two, you actually come from a fairly important city. So sure, go ahead, speak to the people. And Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 22 and makes his defense. And when Paul uses that word defense, that's where we get our word apologetics from. So Paul's not just playing defense here, he's also playing offense. He is giving his account of his own life. And in so doing, he's actually pointing us to Jesus Christ. And verse 6 is significant as Paul recounts his testimony. Paul gives his background, his upbringing, but then at verse 6, things change in Paul's testimony because things changed in Paul's life because God was working in Paul's past. Paul was on the way to Damascus to capture and conquer Christians. And what, tell, and what Paul tells us in verse 6 is that as Paul was going to Damascus for one purpose, God had an altogether different purpose for Paul on the Damascus road. Paul had intended to conquer Christians and Christ intended to conquer Paul. And that's exactly what he did. He converted Paul. And then in verse 14, we see that not only did God convert Paul, but God then commissioned Paul. Through Ananias, Paul's told that the God of our fathers appointed you, Paul, to know his, God's will. And to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth. And so this is where God's providence is on beautiful display because Paul had received the best possible Jewish education when he was a young boy. And now God had saved him. And God was going to explode his mind and transform it, make it totally Christ-centered, and in so doing would make Paul the greatest theologian the church has ever known. Paul was using his past, God was using Paul's past for his glory. And then in verse 21, Paul tells the crowd that God has sent me to the Gentiles. That God is the one pulling the strings of my mission. I, Paul, am not a rodeo missionary. I'm not on this rogue mission. I'm, I'm following God. He's the one who has orchestrated this mission. And I'm, I'm following Him. And this is Paul's defense of the charges that are brought against him. The charges brought against Paul are, you'll remember from last week, that Paul brought a Gentile into the Jewish temple and that Paul was teaching against the law unlawfully. And so Paul, his defense is that he goes back to what God has done in the past. How God has converted Paul, how God commissioned Paul, and then how God sent him to the Gentiles. And so after his arrest, Paul makes this his first defense. And in that defense, Paul witnessed, he testified to, to God's providence in his own life and to God's providence in salvation. God had purposed to save Paul even when Paul was far from him, even when Paul was literally running to imprison 
Christians. And then God commissioned Paul to the Gentiles because God was intent on fulfilling his purpose to bring blessing to the nations. Paul wants us to see that God was working these details out, not Paul. And yet the Jews and their hearts remained hard. They couldn't see God's hand orchestrating Paul's mission, and they definitely couldn't see God's hand orchestrating salvation to the Gentiles. And so we'll continue on reading in verse 22 of chapter 22. If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to just follow along as I read. Up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging and to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went out to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I, brought this, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So, they, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet together. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. So we'd seen in Paul's speech to the crowd, him focus on God's providence in his past, and now we're going to see God's providence in Paul's present moment, in Paul's present circumstances. And so the tribune realizes that things in Jerusalem are getting out of hand, and it's his job to maintain order, and he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why Paul's arrested or what the actual charges are, so his job is to investigate, to get to the bottom of it. And so he orders that Paul would be flogged. And flogging was one of the cruelest means of interrogation that the Romans had invented. The way that the flogging would take place is that Paul would be whipped with leather straps that had bone and metal pieces woven into it. And so basically Paul's back would just be beaten until he was to confess the truth. This was a brutal form of torture. And it was also illegal for a Roman citizen to be flogged. Paul's status as a Roman citizen protected him from this cruel punishment. So as Paul's getting ready to be flogged, he looks to the commander and says, hey, what you're doing, about to do, is actually unlawful because I'm a Roman citizen. And then... The tribune comes in and asks Paul, Paul, are you actually, in fact, a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes, I am actually a Roman citizen. And then the commander looks at Paul and says, well, I bought my citizenship. 
Now, the interesting thing about that statement is it was actually illegal to buy Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship was not something that you could buy like a good at the market. It was supposed to be a privilege. You got it by birth or through military service. So when the commander says, I I bought my citizenship, what he's actually saying is, I actually bribed an official to give it to me. That's how uh, common the citizenship had become in Rome at that time, is that really anybody, if you had enough money, could just become a citizen. So the the tribune is telling Paul, yeah, so what? It doesn't mean much that you're a citizen. All you need is a little bit of money, and you can become a citizen. And Paul replies, but I'm a citizen by birth. I didn't pay, I didn't bribe for my citizenship. And again, we're confronted with the unmistakable fact that God's providence is just hitting us in the face in this passage. Paul didn't bribe to get a citizenship. God gave that to him. God worked that detail in his life for this moment. And Paul pulls his citizenship card. What he's doing is he's actually invoking Roman protection in his legal proceedings. When Paul pulls his citizenship out, it ensures that he will have a at least fair trial. It will not be controlled by the Jews. And we'll see in just a moment that that is actually part of the means that God uses to get Paul to Rome. And so the tribune backs off the flogging. He calls the Jewish council together. And in verse 1 of chapter 23, Paul begins his second defense. His first defense was to the crowds, and now he gives a defense to the council. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he has said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force, bringing him into the barracks. So this is the scene of Paul's second defense in Jerusalem. And Paul begins by directly refuting the charge against him. Remember the charge was that Paul had defiled the temple 
by bringing a Gentile into the temple and that Paul was teaching unlawfully against the law of Moses. And so in verse 1, Paul says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's Paul declaring his innocency against those charges. Paul saying, I'm not impure. I'm not unclean, as you are saying. I haven't defiled the temple. And so that's the reason the high priest orders Paul to be slapped. It's because the high priest understands that Paul is saying, I'm, I'm innocent of your charges. And then Paul responds to the order of the high priest with rather sharp language here. And I, I do think that Paul spoke a bit prophetically here, where he actually caught the high priest acting unlawfully. But I also think that Paul did have respect for the high priest and the structure that God had put in place. Paul hadn't been in Jerusalem for a long time, a number of years. So it's very likely that Paul just didn't know who the high priest was by by face. And so Paul walks his comment back. And so that's how his first defense begins is by Paul declaring he's innocent And then Paul, again, in verse 6, shifts the conversation in his second defense. Verse 6 says, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So we have to ask the question, what's Paul doing in this moment? Is he being politically savvy here? Is he realizing that this is his defense to get out of these charges? Is I, I'm just going to split a polarized people here. I'm going to let them fight among themselves and I, I'll just kind of fade to the background. Maybe, but I don't think that's all what Paul's doing. I think Paul is actually getting to the deeper heart of why he is in prison. And in so doing, he's pointing us to God's providence in his present moment. The end of verse 6, Paul says, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. What Paul does in that statement is he sifts their bogus charges and says, Let's get to the heart of the matter. The reason that I'm here is not because you think I've defiled the temple, but the reason I'm here is because of the resurrection of the dead, because of the resurrection of Jesus. See, the Jews, they had this hope. As they read the Old Testament, they could see that God had clearly promised a Savior. So they were hoping that one day this Savior, this Messiah would come. And Paul says it's with respect to that hope of the Messiah and the resurrection that I'm on trial. Paul is, in effect, saying the resurrection of Jesus actually proves That Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. So Paul is, I don't think being a tactician here, being a politician here, I think Paul is actually testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. He's doing so to the Jewish leaders. They would have understood the implications of what Paul's saying here. And we see that. The the council becomes divided. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees do begin to argue with one another and the theological nature of the imprisonment is revealed. So to bring us back to our theme today, providence, Paul understands why he's on trial. He's on trial to testify about Jesus Christ. Paul isn't running from his circumstances because Paul knows that God has put him in those circumstances so that he could do exactly what he did to testify. God know, uh, Paul knows that God hadn't abandoned Paul in that moment, but rather that God was guiding Paul to testify. So Paul knew that God was working providentially in his past, and his conversion. And Paul knew that God was working providentially in the present so that the glory of Christ could again be preached in Jerusalem. But Paul also knew that God was going to work providentially in his future. And so we finish out the chapter by reading The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Again, verse 11 of chapter 23 is the key that unites these stories. The Lord appears to Paul in a vision. And he tells Paul to take courage. Jesus appears to Paul and in effect tells Paul, Hey Paul, be certain of this. Your life is in my hands. Your life is not in the tribune's hand. Your life is not in the Jews' hands. Your life is in my hands. And don't think for a second, Paul, that I've abandoned you. Don't think for a second, Paul, that I've forgotten about you and your situation. Oh, Paul, I've, I've got a plan for you. And my purpose will not be thwarted. 
My purpose is that you will testify in Rome about me, just as you've testified here in Jerusalem. My providence will not be thwarted, Paul. Take courage. And immediately after that vision, that moment of encouragement to Paul, Paul becomes aware of a very dangerous plot against his life. Luke repeats these details of the plot. And as you're reading it, it can almost feel a bit monotonous as Luke is once again telling us all of the details of the conspiracy. Luke's doing that because he wants us to feel, humanly speaking, the danger that Paul is actually in. Paul's about to face a legitimate danger on his life. But verse 11 tells us that that's not actually a danger because God's providence will not be thwarted. God will work in Paul's future providentially to make sure that Paul gets to Rome. And just a few verses here at the end of the chapter. Verse 23, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea to the third hour of the night. And then skipping down some to verse 33. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So the tribune had heard of this threat and he sent over 400 soldiers along with Paul to Caesarea and made sure that Paul got safely there. You see, friends, God was using this Roman official to fulfill and carry out his plan. Caesarea is one stop closer to Rome. God's providence will not be thwarted. And so Luke writes with tremendous clarity, what happened to Paul in Jerusalem happened because God had purposed it to happen. God's providence made sure that all the events in Jerusalem happened the way that they did. Because God cares about the details. He cares about all the details. And Luke's purpose for us is clear, that we would have an unshakable courage every day of our lives. That our lives are totally in the hand of God. That not one moment of your life and my life has fallen outside of God's thoughts or God's power or God's control. And yet, if we're honest, this truth is one that we sometimes have a hard time with. The reality that God governs all things according to his will. So I want to end our time by thinking through three challenges that sometimes we have with God's providence. The first challenge is that of unbelief. There's what I call the philosophical unbelief that tries to reason rationally and simply say, well, that can't be the case. And that's not the issue I'm going to deal with today. I'm going to talk about the emotional unbelief that we have or the, the heart unbelief that we have towards God's providence over all things. This kind of emotional unbelief looks something like this. That can't be true because God has forgotten about me and my circumstances. So the challenge of 
unbelief with God's providence is that there are times where it's hard providence after hard providence after hard providence to where we just feel beaten down. And like our time in prayer this morning, we feel as David cried out in Psalm 42, God, why have you forgotten about me? That's the challenge of unbelief. We think that God has forgotten about us. And so we respond to that challenge by taking courage, by looking to Jesus and remembering the truth that God cannot abandon his children. The reason that God cannot abandon his children is because Jesus was abandoned on the cross in your place. When Jesus cried, it is finished, he actually meant it. God doesn't have any more wrath to pour out on his children. Therefore, God can never abandon his children. Christ has paid for the debt of his people. And so as we look to Christ, we remember the words of Peter from Acts chapter 2. When Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God was able to take the most tragic, awful, evil event in all of human history and in his providence work it for good, our salvation. If God can do that on the cross, why do we think he can't do that in our own lives? That's the first challenge of unbelief. And we fight it by looking to Jesus and remembering his work on the cross. The second is that of bitterness. And that goes something like this. If God works all things according to the counsel of his will, then, then he must be cruel. Because I definitely don't deserve all of these circumstances that I'm facing right now. We respond to that challenge with gratitude, remembering that all we have from God is a gift because God owes us nothing. Look what God promised to Paul in our passage in verse 11. God promised to Paul that, that Paul would make it to Rome, but he didn't promise that he would make it to Rome on a yacht with three-course meals being served to him all day long. He said, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem. How did Paul testify in Jerusalem? In chains, as a prisoner. God's promise to protect Paul to Rome did not, does not mean health, wealth, and prosperity that's not wrapped up in the promise of God's providence. What is wrapped up in the promise of God's providence is that God will work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So even 
in hard and perhaps unthinkable circumstances, we respond in faith. It's saying, Father, I'm struggling to understand how all of these events are working for my good and your glory. I can't see it with my earthly eyes, Lord, but I, I know what your word says, and I know that you can't lie. I know that you've promised to make me like your son Jesus. And I know that you'll use even these circumstances for that goal. Oh God, help me to trust that you have been working, that you are working, and that you will continue to work. That's the second challenge. The first is that of unbelief. The second is that of bitterness. And the third challenge that we face is that of apathy. And that response goes something like this. God's providence over everything means that, well, he'll take care of it, so I don't have to do anything. That's a misunderstanding. The Lord tells Paul to take courage in that passage in verse 11. The right response to God's providence is faith-filled obedience in every circumstance. In 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So Paul may be referring to, to Acts 28 when he's in Rome, or he may be referring to a later imprisonment that we don't have record of. What we do have record of is that Paul was alone, totally abandoned by everybody. But he says this in verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord strengthened Paul so that Paul would proclaim the gospel. God's providence is a means of faith-filled obedience, not sinful apathy. And so as we finish today, it would be a great tragedy to, to think about God's providence as only applying to our, to our first birth or just to our conversion. And then to think that, well, God saved us and now his, his hands are totally off our life and it's up to us to figure the rest out. God has not shifted into autopilot in your life, in our life, in the life of this church even. Just as God was working providentially in Paul's past, so he's working and has worked in all of his children's past. Just as God was working in Paul's present circumstances, so God is working presently now in the lives of his children. And just as God worked providentially in Paul's future, God will continue to work providentially for his children. Our God is faithful. I'll end with Paul's words in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this. I am certain of this. I have an unshakable confidence of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our God is faithful. He has not forgotten about a single one of his children. He is working even now to complete the work that he has begun. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word.
Oh, Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, take it much further than I could ever hope. Father, as we looked at so many verses today, God, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts in a new and fresh way, Lord, that we rest securely in your hands. Oh, Father, may you fill us with godly courage and Christ-bought joy, or to live as your children every day. Father, trusting that what you ordain is right. Father, give us faith when we struggle. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.